Genesis chapter 11, verse 1 is where I'll read from tonight as we begin. It says, And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime had they for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven, and let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language. And this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them, which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon all the face of the earth. And so the passage that we read from tonight in Genesis chapter 11 uh, is kind of the ending part of a, a segment of the book of Genesis, one of the records that makes up the whole of the book, uh, the fourth of, of uh, the nine or ten that are there, um, that's called really, um, we call it kind of the, the toll dot of uh, Noah's sons, the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And if you look at Je chapter 10, verse 1, uh, that's really how it begins. It says there in Genesis 10, 1, it says, Now these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and unto them were sons born after the flood. And really, this section of the book of Genesis starts in chapter 10, and it goes all the way up through uh, the passage that we read tonight. So all the way up through verse 9 of chapter 11. And it really consists of just two main things. Number one is given to us in chapter 10, and that is the division of nations, or the table of nations uh, as it's known biblically. And all it is, very simply, is a record of where the sons of Noah, the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth went after the flood when they came off of the ark. And so that, that, that's given to us. And then the other thing that's given in the passage is the account that we read uh, of the Tower of Babel, which kind of then explains why and how those nations were dispersed into the places uh, that they went. Now, concerning the, the text that's given to us in chapter 10, which is just the, the, the genealogy of the descendants of Noah, um, it has been called the most accurate account of human geographical mapping that has ever been recorded. And the things that have been traced back to Genesis chapter 10 in terms of identifying people, groups, cultures, uh, languages, all of that, uh, the accuracy is absolutely astounding when you trace it back through history. And so it's used as a proof to the accuracy of the Bible because of the accuracy of the account that's there concerning uh, those nations. And, 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 and you can go ahead and read it. We're not going to read the verses and actually read the names of the descendants 
sense and then try to translate the name to the modern thing. But what I will tell you is that essentially when you uh, do read it, what you discover is that the sons of Japheth, which are mentioned first in verses 2 through 5, that they uh, settled the closest to Mount Ararat where the ark settled after the flood. And his descendants became uh, what is today modern-day Russia, modern-day Turkey, and then they moved westward and eastward into Europe and also into Asia. And so of the three sons of Noah, Japheth was by far the largest in terms of the territory that he took and also the number of people, even as Noah prophesied concerning Japheth at the end of chapter 9 when he said that God will enlarge Japheth. And so those descendants, those names, listed in verses 2 through 5. Then in verses 6 through 20 of chapter 10, we're told about the sons of Ham. And we know that it was Ham that looked upon his father's nakedness uh, and then told it to his brothers. A curse came upon one of uh, Ham's sons, Canaan, one of the four sons, because of what Ham and you know, kind of by association, Canaan also was a partaker in, and a curse came upon them. But the sons of Ham essentially pressed southward from where they were and, and, and by and large inhabited the continent of Africa, uh, as we know it in the modern day, and also parts of Saudi Arabia uh, and parts of the southern Middle East. All of those kind of the descendants of Ham and then, uh, and then, and then there's a portion of scripture that I'd, I'd like you to look at. It's in chapter uh, 10, and it's verses 8 through 10, and it concerns uh, a man, Nimrod. And it's a portion of scripture that I want to look at uh, just quickly because it has to do with our, our passage that we read in Genesis chapter 11. And so notice what it says in verse 8 of chapter 10. It says that Cush, who was the son of Ham, begat Nimrod, so Nimrod, the, the, great, the grandson of Ham and the great-grandson of Noah. And it says that Nimrod began to be a mighty one in the earth, and that he was a mighty hunter before the Lord, wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And it says that the beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kelna in the land of Shinar, and then in verse 11, it says that out of that land then went forth Ashur and built Nineveh uh, and the city of Rehoboth and Kelna and then resin between Nineveh and Kelna and the same is a great city. And so basically what it's telling us concerning Nimrod is it gives us a little sketch, uh, a little profile sketch of him, the only one in the entire chapter of whom we're told anything about. And then it tells us that the beginning of his kingdom uh, was Babylon and then that he at some point went out of Babylon and he went into Assyria and there he founded four more cities, Nineveh and uh, some of these other ones. And so now we know because of the passage that we read why he left Babylon. Or, or Babel and went to Assyria and started those four other cities. You know, it was kind of like a divine enforcement kind of a thing. But this man Nineveh is a very interesting character and very uh, pivotal to the story. We're told that he was a mighty one in the earth. And the idea behind that is that he was probably the first ever uh, of the powerhouse leaders of the world. 
He was part of the ruling class, if you would, or the super ruling class, or the elite, as we might call them today. And that's kind of the idea there when it says that he was a mighty one in the earth. His sphere of influence was worldwide. We're told also that he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And at face value, we look at it as though he just kind of had his bow and arrow and that he, uh, you know, was into venison, or the, the whole thing. But that's not really the idea behind uh, the phrase and what it's saying there. But what it is, what it means when it says that he's a mighty hunter, it means that he was one who ensnared not animals, but he ensnared men with his words and also with theirs. And, uh, you know, kind of an understood factor concerning this Nimrod is that he knew how to dominate people and that he was really a hunter of souls. And when it says before the Lord, the word in the Hebrew is actually against. And so the man Nimrod is someone who is antagonistic to the things of God. And he was one who, uh, um, had the intention of provoking God and also inciting rebellion among men. And this is the kind of man that this man Nimrod was. Uh, the Jerusalem Targum, which was a, a, um, a, a kind of modern Jewish translation of this passage, interprets it this way. It says that in the Targum that he was a power, he was powerful in hunting and in wickedness before the Lord, for he was a hunter of the sons of men. As he said to them, depart from the judgment of the Lord and hear the judgment of Nimrod. Therefore, it is said, as Nimrod, the strong one, strong in hunting and in wickedness before the Lord. And so kind of just generally historically known that this man Nimrod, a mighty ruler, uh, and that he was really the, the, um, the, the influence behind the things that happened in Babel that led to the dispersion of the nations as the people rebelled against the Lord. We're told also concerning Nimrod that the beginning of his kingdom was Babel in the, in the plains of Shinar. And thus we understand that Nimrod was the leader or the driving force behind the building project that we read about in chapter 11. The historian Josephus and also uh, the historical Jewish traditional book, the Talmud and the Midrash all testify to the fact that Nimrod was the main influence behind the building of the Tower of Babel. In paganism, Nimrod is worshipped as one of their main deities. And in their uh, mythology, in their theology, pagan theology, uh, they believe that Nimrod was himself a god and that his wife, he married Semiramis, that she was also the fertility goddess or a manifestation of the fertility goddess. And, um, you know, in the tradition concerning Nimrod, uh, he died and then Semiramis miraculously conceived after the death of Nimrod, gave birth to a son whom they named Tammuz. And so they worshiped Tammuz uh, because he was kind of like the divine offspring of Nimrod. And they believed him to be the resurrection of Nimrod back in the earth. And that went good for a while, but then Tammuz ultimately died early because he was gored to death by a wild boar. And so every spring, they would mourn for Tammuz for a month out of the year, all in faith and hope that one day he would resurrect and come back and return. Now, if you kind of lay that over the gospel, you can see a whole bunch of counterfeit uh, belief in, in the whole thing. But that's how prominent this man Nimrod was and his offspring. 
The worship of Tammuz at one point entered into Israel. When we read Ezekiel chapter 8, in verses 13 and 14, God speaks to Ezekiel and he says that the children of your people have done even greater abominations than these, for I have seen the women weeping for Tammuz. Uh, at the walls of Jerusalem. And so uh, this was prominent in the world in those days, and it had even reached into Israel, this Babylonian worship and the influence that Nimrod and his offspring and all of the uh, you know, folklore that surrounded them um, had in, in that nation. And so thus Nimrod was worshipped as a god in Simiramis and Tammuz as well. Now, what we know concerning Babylon in the Bible, is that it is, uh, from Genesis to Revelation, it is the symbol of idolatry. In the book of Revelation, Babylon is called the mother of harlots. And when the Bible talks about harlots in that context, in the spiritual context, it's speaking of false religious systems. And so for Babylon to be called the mother of harlots What's implying is that every false religious system has its roots in Babylon in some way. And so the things that were taking place in Babylon under Nimrod's leadership and under the actions of the people somehow led to all of the idolatry that exists in the world even until the end times when God looks at the whole thing and says that it's the mother of all harlots. So every idolatrous religious system found its roots in Babel. And so we understand the kind of place that it was, and we understand the kind of man that Nimrod was, who was the leader over it. And so we have his account there in Genesis chapter 10, amongst the descendants of Ham. And so uh, that's given to us there. Then in verses 21 to 31 of chapter 10, we have the descendants of Shem. And the significance of the descendants of Shem is that they became the Semitic people. And so Abraham ultimately came through the line of Shem. And that's important to us because if Abraham came through the line of Shem, then that means one day Jesus Christ is also going to come through the line of Shem. And thus, uh, blessed be the Lord God of Shem, even as Noah said, because it would be through Shem's descendants that God would send a savior into the world. And so uh, we read of Eber, a man in uh, the line of Shem, and, you know, from that is where we get the, the, the word Hebrew or the Hebrew people or the Aburai, the shepherd or nomadic peoples. And so the Hebrews were the descendants of Shem that came down through our faxhead, through Peleg, ultimately to Nahor, uh, Abraham, and then Abraham's descendants. And, and that would be the line that God would establish, all of them being the Shemites. And they would occupy what is kind of predominantly the Middle Eastern region, not far from uh, where the ark landed. And so all of those nations, 70 nations are highlighted in Genesis chapter 10 and, uh, and then laid out according to their descendants. And so all of that is there. And then the account closes. Now, what the chapter doesn't tell us, chapter 10 that is, is why those nations were dispersed in the way that they were. That's what we learn as we come into chapter 11. How did they get there? How did the descendants of Ham end up in the southern parts? How did the descendants of Japheth spread out throughout the European continents? How did the Shemites end up where they were according to their tribes and families and their lineage? How did that happen? Well, that's answered in chapter 11 in the account 
of the tower and all that's there. We're told in chapter 11, verse 1, in the passage that we read, that in those days that the whole earth was of one language and one speech. Now, the Bible's not being redundant. God is not, you know, saying, well, I want you to hear me twice on this. So I'm just going to repeat myself, one language and one speech. But essentially, what God is revealing to us here in the very first verse of this passage is that in those early days in Babel, when they had come off the ark, that first of all, everyone in the world spoke the same language. And that language was probably Hebrew. And we know that because of the way uh, that everything is recorded prior to the flood in the account of creation and in the early days of man uh, coming into the flood, all of the names and the words, the, the, the things work out in the Hebrew. So most likely the language that was in this time was Hebrew, but it was a common language. And all of the people could speak to one another. They could understand each other. There was no breakdown in the communication. There was no different dialects wherein I had to learn your language or the way that you spoke in order for us. But everyone was able to freely communicate with one another in those days. One language. But then it says that they were also of one speech. And that means something a little bit different. When it says that they were of one speech, it means the word, it means one business one manner, one mindset. Meaning that not only could the people communicate with one another freely, but they were also all on the same page as it came to their business or their manner, their mindset, or their drive in life. They were in a common mindset concerning what their ambitions were and what it was that they were seeking to do. And so the idea of what's being communicated to us here right at the very beginning is that all of the population of the world in those days had the ability to work together because they all spoke the same language and they were unified in their goals or their objectives, or the things that they wanted to accomplish. And that's a very powerful combination when you put those two things together. When people understand each other, and they have a common goal, and they can work together, the ability, and they're equipped with, with uh, unity, uh, they can get a lot of things done. And so this is an amazingly powerful combination of things that the citizens of the world had in these days. Now we're told what their goals and what their manner, their mindset was in the verses that follow. It says in verse 2 to us, it says that they, speaking of the unified whole of them, found a plain in the land of Shinar, and that they dwelt there. And so the collective mass of humanity finds this plot of land in Shinar, which is where Babylon became situated in its development, and it would ultimately be there that they would become. And so under the leadership of Nimrod, who we know already is a negative or a bad influence, and the people being together in disobedience to God, what did God say to Noah and his sons when they got off the ark? He said, spread out, right? And now they've all come together. What we have is we have a group of people that are unified and able to work together in a common pursuit against the things of God. And so we have the recipe for rebellion right here before us in this. And this is not a good thing that's happening as they come to build this thing. Now, what's their action that they set forth to do? We're told in verse 3 that they said to one another, go to, 
and let us bake bricks and burn them thoroughly. In other words, we're going to make synthetic rocks that are able to withstand great pressures. We're not going to use the God-made stuff that we could just harvest from the earth, but we're going to make our own thing. We're going to shape it the way we want it. We're going to temper it. We're going to uh, bake it thoroughly and make it uh, strong for our purposes. So they're going to use bricks baked thoroughly, and then they're going to use slime or pitch or tar as mortar to hold these bricks now together. Now, why would you use tar or pitch or petroleum products as a mortar to hold bricks together? The only reason you would do that is if you wanted something to be waterproof, because that was a waterproofing substance used even to this day on flat roofs and such uh, for that common purpose. It was what God said to Noah that he was to cover the ark with in order to keep it seaworthy and keep water from coming in. And so they make indestructible, at least by their standards, rocks of bricks And they use pitch or slime, and they begin now to construct this tower, and then they say, here's what it's for. We're going to build a tower whose top may reach up to heaven, and we're going to make a name for ourselves, a reputation. We're going to strengthen ourselves here, lest so that we don't have to be dispersed throughout all of the world. And so they want a tower, they want a name, so that they can stay where they want to be. And so their intentions in what they were seeking to build were threefold. First of all, they thought they could protect themselves from any flood that God might want to send again in the world. Okay, God, you're going to send a flood that's going to bury the whole world? Then we're going to build a tower 15 feet higher Then the waters flowed when you drowned the earth in the days of Noah. And we're going to ensure that you're not able to succeed in a purpose like that again. And so purpose number one is that they thought they could insulate themselves from a coming judgment of God if he should so choose to judge with a flood. So they wanted to avert judgment. Secondarily in their purpose is they thought they could get to heaven on their own. They thought that they could build something so high and so vast that they would be able to climb it and work their way into the very presence of God with the effort of their hands and the things that they could do. And then the third thing is that they wanted to do it themselves without any involvement of God at all and without obedience to God and without any concern for his will for their lives whatsoever. So they wanted to do this, protect themselves from judgment and get to heaven without any regard for the will of God and what he actually wanted for their lives. This was the mindset of the people led by Nimrod in those days. Well, we're told in verse 5, God's response to all of this. That God, it says, came down. Now, I love that when you see it in verse 5, that it says that God came down. Because what that tells you in the first sentence, the first breath of God's observation of this, is that this thing was a total failure. Because they were trying to get up to God, and God had to come down even to see what they were doing. They didn't even come close to to achieving the purpose that they had in trying to reach unto God. He came down to see this thing. It wasn't high enough. And it says that he came to see it. Now, what always amazes me is that people that want to live outside of the will of God think that they can do things in such a way wherein God doesn't see it. 
But we're told here that God saw the things that they did. And God's response when he came down and saw it is that he says in verse 6 that, behold, he said, look, the people are one. The people are unified. And this is what they begin to do in the strength of their unity. And now nothing, and it's a remarkable thing what God says. Listen to what God says in verse 6. He says that nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do in, in this unity that they now have. And so God's solution to the thing is he said, let us, you say, who's the us? That's the Trinity, God speaking to himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, conferring together. And he says, we're going to confound their languages and we're going to divide them. And thus verses 8 and 9 tell us in conclusion to uh, what God did in this, that the people were then scattered abroad throughout the face of the earth, their languages being confused. Now this is a remarkable thing, isn't it, when you think about it? I mean, because what this, first of all, answers just very plainly is, where in the world did all the languages come from? Where did cultures come from? Where did the differences and the things that make us different from one another and see things differently come from? This is where it came from. God did it supernaturally in those days in response to their rebellion against him. He intervened and did not allow them to unify in one purpose against himself. He vowed to Noah that he would not again destroy the earth with a flood. And so rather than judging by a flood, he judges by dispersion. And I wonder what this was like. You know, sometimes I think, you know, what was it like for them to be sitting there? And, you know, did one guy have, have a brick in his hand? And the other guy said, hand me that brick. And all of a sudden, did he just hear French? You know, like, pass me the brick, you know, or something. And the guy's like, what in the world did you just say? And he's like, I don't know, you know. I, did it happen like that? You know, was there just all of a sudden, uh, you know, a switch? I don't know. I wonder sometimes if there was just something that God did on the inside wherein maybe they, you know, continued to speak the same language, but all of a sudden they couldn't see eye to eye anymore. You know, the, the one guy is there and he's make, maybe taking a measurement and all of a sudden the guy looks at, looks at him and he just says, well, why are you measuring it from the top down? Why wouldn't you measure from the bottom up? I always measure from the top down. That's how you measure. It's what you do. You know what are you talking about? No, no, no. You can't get an accurate measurement that way. You measure from the bottom up. What if the what if from the top down is inaccurate? You you always from and then all of a sudden a fight broke out and the guy said, "I'll show you which way." Well, from the top down and grabs a brick and throws it down. You know what was it like? Was there a conflict? Was there all of a sudden you know kind of the communication breakdown that we even experience among ourselves and homes? You know, in the kind of I don't know what it was like, but this is what happened in those days to a point where the people that could speak the same language went where God drove them. And thus the nations were dispersed, the sons of Japheth to the north, the sons of Ham to the south, the sons of Shem dispersed abroad in that area. We know that Abraham was from Ur of the Chaldees, not far from Babylon, just a little ways down uh, the river from there. You know? so, so all of the nations dispersed as a result of this judgment and intervention of God on things. So what do we learn from this passage if we look at it from uh, you know, the New Testament, modern day, uh, looking at this as the church, okay, this is a great history lesson. I'm so glad that I came tonight and learned about where culture and language came from. But does this have any bearing in my life? Does this mean anything to me in the modern age? What do we take away from this passage? And there absolutely is uh, things that we learn for ourselves in it. And so if you're taking notes tonight, just by way of application as we wrap up our study, 
The first thing that we learn in this is that the sinful nature of man is absolutely incurable. There is absolutely no human solution at all to the sinful nature of fallen man. What amazes me as I read this passage is to consider that Noah is still alive at this time. That Shem, Ham, and Japheth are still alive at this time. That while this is happening, the remains of an ark are still resting in the mountains of Ararat, covered with pitch, a testimony of God's judgment for the rebelliousness of man in times past. And it's amazing to me that rather than listening to God and seeking and heeding his ways, they find a way to break away from him and to walk in independence from him, even as the collective whole of humanity. If you read on from verse 9 in Genesis chapter 11, it gives to you the descendants of, of, of Shem, and it's doing that on purpose because it's bringing us to Abraham, but it actually tells you how old each of the men were when they had their sons. And we were told back in Genesis 10 that it was in the days of Peleg, P-E-L-E-G, that the earth was divided. And we find out how old Peleg was in the verses that follow the passage in chapter 11. What we realize is that this is somewhere between one and 300 years after the flood. Think about that. I mean, they just got off the boat. And between 100 and 300 years, you have the collective body of humanity in unified rebellion against God. And it is just a fact of the matter that the flesh of man is absolutely irredeemable. No matter how you try to reform it, no matter how you try to change its behavior or modify its behavior, ultimately the fallen flesh of man is set and bent on rebellion towards God. And the most that you and I could ever bring to God in and of ourselves is rebellion against him. Because in me, as Paul said, that is in my flesh dwells what? No good thing. There's absolutely nothing good in us apart from God. Jeremiah 17, 9. Jeremiah the prophet says that the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked above all things, and who can know it? That's the best you and I could ever produce in and of ourselves is sin. And God will never accept our flesh in his presence because he knows what's in our flesh. He doesn't reform it. He doesn't change it. His answer to our flesh is that he crucifies it. Colossians chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, Paul the Apostle says this. He says, we've been buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who has raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, has he quickened or made alive together with him having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. God doesn't tell us to reform our behavior or change it. He tells us to bring our flesh to the foot of his cross and let him crucify it there, and to let the power of Christ rise up within us and let God transform us from the inside. A number of years ago, there was a pastor, a true story, and he was counseling with a woman who was suicidal. 
And she came and she sat down with the pastor and she said to him, I, I just want to kill myself. I don't want to live another day. I just nothing. I, my life is just filled with misery and everything in me. I just want to die. I just want to kill myself and take my life. And he said he, he sat back and he listened to what she was saying for just a minute. And he said he looked at the woman and he, he just said, I agree. He said, I think you should do it. And she, she was taken aback a little bit and he didn't say anything. And she looked at him and she said, well, you're supposed to tell me I'm not supposed to kill myself. You're, you're supposed to give me hope and a reason to live. And you're, you're telling me I should go through with it? He goes, yeah. I mean, you sound miserable. I would want to kill myself if I was you. You know, you should do it. He says, but let me ask you this. Before you kill yourself, do you have diabetes? She said, no. She's fine like that. He said, well, I didn't think so. You look like you were in, in good health. He says, do you have any, I mean, do your eyes work okay? Can you see? She says, no, 2020, it's fine. Ears, can you hear? Yeah, tasting's good. You got any cancers? And no, no, I'm, I'm fairly good health. He goes, well, he goes, then there's no reason to really kill your body. I mean, your body seems just fine. He goes, maybe there's someone on the inside that needs to die. He says, that's who you should kill. You should crucify that one. Let that person die, and then you'll live. And she got the point. See, it isn't our bodies. It's what's inside. It's the human nature. It's the natural man that's born after Adam. It's corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. The Bible says that we were all children of wrath. The Bible says that we were born into this life alienated from the life of God, separated from him. We're sinners by nature. And God's solution to our sinful flesh is that we bring it to the cross of Jesus Christ and allow him to crucify it there. And then he raises it in his power. But in ourselves, there is nothing redeemable at all. And we see that illustrated so clearly in this passage. Mankind is bent on rebellion against God in his fallen state. The second thing that we learn from this passage uh, here in Genesis is that man-made religion, it's nothing new, and it can ease the mind, but it cannot save. The three purposes that these had in building this tower is that they thought they could avoid judgment, they thought they could reach heaven, and they thought that they could make a name for themselves. They could avoid judgment by building higher. They could reach heaven by the same, the elevation, just climbing up, building up. And they thought they could make a name for themselves that they would feel a sense of security and ease and that God would have to honor their commitment because of what they've done and the size of what it became. It's amazing what you can do with a name, isn't it? A reputation. I think of ancient Israel in the times of Jesus Christ. And here was the Son of God on the scene demonstrating who God was. And yet they would refuse the very Son of God and Jesus trying to reason with them. He would say to them, you know, you guys say that you have Abraham as your father. It was a name. Hey, we have Abraham. Yeah, that's right. We know Abraham. Who are you? You're not even 50 years old. They were holding on to a name and using a name to hide behind. And in that, they were rejecting the Son of God. Jesus said to the church in Sardis in the book of Revelation, chapter 3, he said, you have a name as though you live, but yet you're dead. Man, using a religious system, a religious church even, in such a way that he can hide behind it and think that he's righteous, appease his conscience, and yet be totally off with God, hiding behind a name, appeasing his guilt behind calling himself a Christian. 
It's amazing how it creates comfort. Back a, a month or two ago, Georgia and I, we took the kids and we went to a, a concert that they were holding at Vassar College Chapel in honor of the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. You know, Martin Luther nailing the 96 theses on the doors of the chapel. And, uh, you know, and, and so they had this uh, concert there and we wanted to go. And so we go to this concert. But before the concert, they had a panel discussion with a Lutheran bishop, a Catholic apologist, and the dean of theology at Vassar College. And we got there early enough to get seats, so we were privileged enough to catch the last 20 minutes of this panel discussion between these three people. And my wife knew. She was like, I know this is going to kill me. You know, and I was like, why? You know, she was right. And what one of the three said is, you know, at the end of this thing, is that if Martin Luther were alive today, that he would encourage us to look behind, beyond the borders of our own Christian tribe and see what God is doing in other religions and other parts of the world. And what they'd find is that God is very much at work in other religions just as much as he is in the Christian religion. And when this person said it, I bit my finger like this, and the room burst into applause at what she said. And I was like, what? And, I, and it came out. <laughs> and all the people around, like, what did she just, oh, give them something away. What, what was just said? You know, and, and I was like, I can't believe this. And everybody's cheering. And then even some of the people who were around when it was over said, well, what was that about? Like, what was the, and I said, really? You know? But it's amazing. They, Martin Luther, well, we're, we're Lutheran. And we're hiding behind a name. You have a name as though you live, and yet you're dead. And that's what religion does. It takes a name, a reputation, and it uses it to appease conscience. And that's what they were doing in those days. People that call themselves Christians all the time try to build man-made structures of religion to try to reach God. They will work so hard in their strength and in their flesh to try to do something spiritual. People that will climb 400 and something steps on their knees to kiss the toes of a statue so that they can someday stand before God and say, God, see, I fulfilled this because I was so devoted to you. People that will never miss church. They don't know God. They don't care about God. The things of God are foreign to them. But they'll never miss church because someday they hope to stand before God and say, God, check my attendance record. It was perfect. You've got to let me in. There's a whole bunch of people that even come to this church. They come in, they drop their tithe check in the box, and they leave. They don't even stay for the service. It happens every week. You just watch them, and they look at you like, hey, here's my check. Put it in. Have a nice week. See you next week. And you just wonder. you know. And, and yet people all the time, religion works, trying to appease God through the works of what I do. Listen, there is one way. One way to avoid judgment, to reach heaven, and to be secure. And it's not through the towers of religion castle that we build. It's through the blood of a lamb that was slain on a cross 2,000 years ago. Wherein God condemned the sins of the world in his very son and now gives access through the door of his flesh for you and I to come to him in simple faith and say, God, I am a sinner. And I'm in need of your mercy and of your grace. Would you receive me? 
And what we find on the other side of that cross is we find a God who is willing to receive us right where we are. My wife was um, setting up for my daughter's birthday. Back in November, she puts out albums of their pictures through the years. And she was telling me a couple of days after the birthday that when she was opening up the picture, she saw a picture of herself uh, when my oldest was born, which is going back 16 years now. And she said when she saw the picture of herself, immediately something brought her back to those days where she was at that time. And she said that all of the things that she was struggling with during those days, all of the sins, the things that God was dealing with in her life, all of those things kind of came into her mind. Uh, and and she, she had this tremendous sense of uh, thanksgiving as she realized all that God had done in the past 16 years in her life and the change that had come forth. She said, but the most amazing part of that moment is that she heard the whisper of the Lord say to her in that moment that I loved you just as much then when you were in that condition as I do now when you're in this condition. That's grace. That's the love of God. And no amount of religion, no amount of effort, no amount of works, no amount of anything that I could ever do could improve one iota upon how much he loves me in the cross. But apart from that, I've got nothing before him. Man-made religion might ease the mind, but it cannot save and it cannot spare from judgment. The third thing that we learn from this passage is that there is not a force on earth as powerful as unity. Even God himself says that they are one and nothing will be impossible to them that they have imagined to do. Nothing will be restrained. And you and I know just from observation in everyday life the power that unity is in a life. If you have two people that are unified in their marriage, you know that's an impenetrable marriage. It's a strong marriage. A family that's unified is a family that cannot be torn apart. When you see a sports team that's unified, that they're playing as one, when there's no I in team, you know how they say, you know that that team is going to be successful because there's unity in it. When you have an organization or a business that's unified and there isn't splinters and divisions, if you have a church that's unified, it's strong, it can't be penetrated by evil. And if you have a fallen humanity that's unified, it's going to succeed in its purpose. There's power and there's strength in unity. Jesus would say that a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. And that's true. But the opposite is also true, that a kingdom united can stand and it can withstand great evil, great wickedness. It's amazing, Jesus... In John 17, when he prayed, you read John 17, the whole chapter is read. It's the prayer of Jesus. Five times in the prayer that Jesus prayed for you and I, he prayed that we would be one. That we would be unified, that the church would be unified. Because when there's unity, there's strength and there's power. I find it so amazing that on the day of Pentecost... Acts chapter 2. You guys know the story. I hope you do. The day that the Holy Spirit was poured out. Remember the account? They were sitting in the room and they were all just kind of waiting. And all of a sudden they're filled with the Holy Spirit. They begin to speak with tongues. And it's noised abroad what's going on in that room. They go down into the street and they begin to declare the things that God was doing. And do you know what it says in that account? It says that every man heard him speak in his own language. Think about it. 
that on the day the Spirit was poured out, God reunited languages that had previously been divided. But how did it happen? The cross, the blood, and the Spirit. And when you have the cross and the blood and the Spirit in the life of two people, they can speak the same language. What would otherwise be divided can be again unified. What does that mean? It means that you and I have the potential to experience the power that unity produces and provides in a way that no one else in the world can. Because we have the true power that unity produces in the Lord. I hope we love one another tonight. I hope there's no one else in the body of Christ that you look at and you think that you're better than. Or that you're more valuable than. Or that he loves you more than. Because the cross does two things. It puts us all on a level playing field. It makes us all sinners before a holy God. And it makes us all equally loved by him. And thus, it affords unity because we now have a purpose that's higher than ourselves. And the power of unity is so strong. Nothing is impossible to a united force. And there's nothing more that God wills for his church than that we would be one and that we would love one another. There's power in unity. The fourth thing that we learn from this passage is that we learn where this world is ultimately headed. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, The Apostle Paul said that the mystery of iniquity is already at work. Only he who now restrains will restrain until he's taken out of the way, and then the wicked one will be revealed, you know. He's talking about the end times. He's talking about what's going to happen when God judges the world, when the things that are written in the book of Revelation come to pass and are fulfilled. And he says that even in his day, the mystery of iniquity is already working. There's something that's happening. The wheels of sin are turning in the world and bringing it to its ultimate place of consummation. So what is the mystery of iniquity that begins here at the Tower of Babel that will consummate in the book of Revelation? Well, we see that the beginning of Babylon is here. It's one world government. It's one world leader. It's one world religion united against God. It's a collective humanity that thinks they've found the answer. As we read and study the Bible and we look through it, we see that behind this mystery of iniquity is none other than Satan himself. And when we read the book of Revelation, we see clearly that the world is headed towards one world government, one world religion, one world ruler, one world leader. Collective humanity thinking that they found the answer in that one man. Babylon the Great coming to its fullness and its fruition. It's amazing to me when you read verse 8 of Genesis 11, the passage that we read. Did you see it? Maybe the verse will come up on the screen. You can see it again. Do you see what it says concerning the tower? It says that they left off to build the city. I love that phrase. I love You guys know I like the King James, right? I'm partial to it. It is a little bit more accurate than every other English translation. Thank you. They left off to build the city. What what do we use that phrase for? We say, I'm going to pick up where I left off, right? They didn't quit. They didn't give up. They just left off. There's a comma there. There's a pause. Why? 
Because what we recognize is that this plot and plan to accomplish and complete what began in Genesis chapter 11 has never died. But it exists even to this day. And one day it will find its culmination. Now, you say, where are we in the progress of heading towards that place? Well, the barrier of language and communication has all but been eliminated, hasn't it? We can communicate with anyone in the world. The moral degradation of society and its unified front against God is making rapid progress day by day. As we find ourselves living in a world that's antagonistic towards the things of God and that wants no restraint or restriction from a holy God. We see that there's a fierce desire among the powers that be for a global government and to see a one world economy. I found this, these are recent I don't, I don't really have time to read all of it, but, uh, you know, a whole bunch of just different things. There's a transcript from a 1991 meeting wherein uh, David Rockefeller, amongst other members of the elite ruling class, said that we are grateful to the Washington Post, the New York Times, Time Magazine, and other publications whose directors have attended our meetings and respected their promises of discretion for almost 40 years. It would have been impossible for us to develop our plan for the world if we had been subject to the bright lights of publicity during those years. But the world is now much more sophisticated and prepared to march toward a world government. The supranational sovereignty of an intellectual elite and world bankers is surely preferable to the national auto-determination practiced in past centuries. Openly declaring where things are headed. In 1994, the same man was quoted at a UN dinner saying, we are on the verge of a global transformation. All we need is the right major crisis and the nations will accept a new world order. In 2002, in the memoirs, it's recorded written, he said, some even believe that we are part of a secret cabal working against the best interests of the United States, characterizing my family and me as internationalists and of conspiring with others around the world to build a more integrated global political and economic structure, one world, if you will. If that's the charge, I stand guilty and I'm proud of it. And so this plot and this plan, we see it, it's in full motion even to the present day that we're living uh, in even now. We see it there and we're there at this whole thing. You say, well, how can you say that we're united? Because I don't think that the world has ever been more polarized than it is in in the days that we live in right now. I mean, look at every single election is like 49% to 51%. Even in the primaries where it's within the same party, it's 49%. They're divided within themselves. Everyone is divided. Uh, Where is unity going to come from in in all of that? I want to remind you of something that Jesus said in Luke chapter 21, verse 34. Listen to the words of Jesus. He said this. He said, take heed to yourselves, lest at any time your hearts be overcharged with surfeiting and drunkenness and the cares of this life so that that day comes upon you unawares. For as a snare, it shall come upon all them that dwell upon the face of the whole earth. Did you hear that? He says that it will come as a snare. What's a snare? It's something that's unexpected. It's something that is set 
at a certain time and then slowly enclosed, waiting for the vulnerable moment, and then snap. It snaps and it catches all those that were within its grip and within its paws. And so, as was even stated in the quote, all it's going to take for the world to come to its knees is the right crisis at the right time with the right solution and the right leader. And when those things are set up, the world will immediately be thrust into this time that mimics what we read about here in this area of, uh, you know, the, the, where it talks about the tower and, and, um, and all of that. So, where are we at in all of this? There's three things that stand in the way. The church, the Jew, and the Muslim. Because no matter what happens, those three groups will never go along. The church, the church, the true church, that is, that knows the word of God, is never going to submit to what we know to be paganism and idolatry and rebellion against God. And so something has to happen to the church. The Bible says the church is going to be removed. 2 Thessalonians 2.7, again, that which restrains will be taken out of the way, and then will the wicked one be revealed. The Muslim, you read Ezekiel chapter 38, you realize that five-sixths of their forces are going to be eliminated supernaturally in one battle that we're seeing pulsating closer to us day by day. The Jew, they'll be bought off in an agreement that will afford them the building of the third temple. For seven years, a covenant will be made, and they'll go along with the plan because of what's given to them in it, even though they won't agree internally in their hearts to follow after when the abomination of desolation is set up. And so all that to say is that we're watching the fulfillment of all of these things right before our eyes in the days that we're living in. And we're seeing the fulfillment of what God knew would take place way at the very beginning when he laid it out. One world government, one world ruler, one world religion. A collective humanity united in rebellion against God. And we see it coming to pass in the days that we live in. So what do we do? We're approaching a new year. Things happening very quickly. What do we do? We watch. We keep our eyes on heaven and keep our hearts fixed there that we don't get consumed with the things of this world. Jesus said, watch and pray that you might be counted worthy to escape all these things and to stand before the Son of Man. He said, take heed unto yourselves lest you be consumed. And so we heed the words of Christ and we watch and await his return. We also love one another. We take what's been given to us in the Pentecostal spirit that's been poured out and we love each other, and we serve one another, and we serve God's purposes in the world as we wait for his return, laying aside self-will and giving ourselves to his will. Amazing things that are before us. We'll close there tonight. The worship team can come. People ask the question sometimes, where is America in Bible prophecy? You know, is America spoken of in the Bible? And the clear answer to that is no. There's no clear reference to the United States of America in Bible prophecy. You, you know, you just can't find it. You can, you know, oh, there's eagles pictured there. You know, there's the sons of the lions of Tarshish, you know, and different things, that whatever. However, the United States of America absolutely has played a role in Bible prophecy, very clearly. 
When Donald Trump, and this isn't a pitch for a president or a party or any kind of a political statement in any way, but when Donald Trump, before the entire nation, recognized Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, officially as United States policy, he sealed something that was started 70 years ago by President Truman when he recognized Israel's right to exist as a nation publicly. Truman and Trump, 70 years apart, 1947 to 2017. Truman recognized the nation's right to exist. Trump recognized Jerusalem as their capital. And what that symbolically was, was the crystallizing of America's role in the establishing, the recognition, and the protecting of the nation of Israel resurrected in the last days, according to God's word. That's an amazing privilege when you think about it. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, God says that he set the boundaries of the nations according to the numbers of the children of Israel. In other words, that when God established the very nations that we talked about and read about tonight, he did it with Israel in mind, their connection with Israel, their relationship proportionately and relationally. And when I think about what God has done for the United States of America and the blessing that it is to live in this country and to have the freedom that we have, I see it as a remarkable privilege that we get to be a part of what God has done with Israel in the days in which we live. All that to say is that's an exciting thing to think what God might do for our country. What an amazing grace. God said to Abraham, I will bless those that bless you and I will curse those that curse you. We just blessed Israel in a major way. What does that mean for our nation? What it means to me is that I expect that God will pour out his spirit and that he will move upon the lost and that he will use his church in the United States of America in the days that we're living in. We have an amazing opportunity. And I wonder if just on the cusp of this new year, there might be something in us that we say, Lord, I need a revival in my heart. I need my spirit revived. Lord, I need to be changed. I need to be stirred up. I need my roots to be taken out of the soil of this fallen planet and set more firmly in the things of your kingdom, Lord. Lord, what's your plan for me in 2018? What do you want to do with me this year? How can I love one another? I pray God give us wisdom, that he would stir our hearts and help us to see the significance of the days that we're living in through the lens of his word. Amen? Father, we thank you tonight. We ask you, Lord, to help us to see these things in the context of our existence, our present place as a nation, our position as a church in Poughkeepsie and Dutchess County and in the United States of America, and that you'd help us, Lord, in our families and our personal lives, in our devotion to you, to be on the right side of all things. I pray, Lord, that we would in no wise set up idols in our heart or think that religious works can earn us favor with you, but that by grace through faith at the foot of the cross, we would find our lives completely hidden in Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would use us, that you would use our families, our marriages as a testimony to our neighbors and our communities. I pray that you would use our church and continually help us to be a city that's set upon a hill that cannot be hid. I pray, Lord, that your protection would be upon us, upon our homes, our hearts, our church and our nation. And we pray, Lord, above all things, that we be filled with your Holy Spirit.
that we would have fervent love for one another, for love covers a multitude of sins, that you would strengthen our gifts and our ability to serve, that you would give us vision for our place and what you've given us individually to do, and you'd help us to walk in those things. So help us, Lord. We need you. In an amazing way, Lord, answer us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.